2: Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
3: Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. And so, ladies and gentlemen, it would appear that the worm is starting to turn. People in positions of power are beginning to realise what I have been saying for weeks now is the truth that the solutions for bringing us back to normality are indeed correct that continued lockdown is a disaster and that we must learn to live with this virus. This morning, the Deputy Mayor of Manchester has broken ranks with the powers that be to say that the COVID measures which are now in place are actually more damaging than COVID-19 itself. Sir Richard Lees says that the mental health of the nation is now at risk and the inability of hospitals up and down the country to do basic and routine operations is massively denting public confidence and the health of the population. We heard from plenty of you yesterday on this show who confirmed that the NHS has let you down, has cancelled procedures, and is generally difficult to deal with, since the pandemic began. Today, we will be exploring this notion further and asking for more of your stories on what is going on out there because, frankly, it feels like the nation is at some kind of a standstill, a self imposed quarantine of movement and ideas to get us out of the COVID quagmire. It seems to me as if we're sitting here treading water when what we should be doing is heading very firmly uh, for the victory line by swimming, not in fact sitting still. You know what to do. We need your eyes and ears, we need your views, we need your stories, and we need to know what you're seeing out there 0344 499 1000 we are after all not only the home of common sense but the purveyors of your common sense to the nation coming up later on we'll be traveling to california with Ladonna harvey to get the lowdown lowdown on how america is coping not only uh is there a presidential election about to happen but there is also a massive outbreak of homelessness there's a massive outbreak of violence and there's a massive outbreak as well uh, of People not quite knowing what to do about this ridiculous disease that we're all having to deal with. And we'll also hear from author and commentator Helen Dale on the migrant crisis and much else besides 03444991000. And as if that wasn't enough, we'll be take talking court cases with Jerry Hayes and scurvy with James Blunt. That's right, the singer has confessed that he caught the disease when he was in college and eating a meat-only diet just to upset his vegan friends. We've tried to see whether he will come on. We will keep our fingers crossed to see whether he does. Because I think James Blunt uh, is one of those great British institutions. Very funny, very interesting, very talented, and very wealthy, as he'd be quite happy to tell you. You'll listen to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now it is of course GCSE day and uh, for all of those people out there trying to get into the systems to try and figure out precisely how they've done, uh, good luck with that Uh, and apparently uh, by a bizarre coincidence uh, the numbers and the the actual averages are all up because of course many of these uh, grades that have been given out have been given out on behalf of the teachers. My son uh, is one of them, apparently he's done quite well much to my surprise. So uh, uh, congratulations to all of you who have done well and congratulations to all of you who have not done well because you'll have another opportunity uh, to do better. And that's where we are. Now, before we do anything else, let us introduce our first guest. I'm happy to say, delighted even to say, that it's John Rental, Chief Political Commentator at The Independent. And I'll be asking him whether he shares my view um, that this treading water uh, business needs to stop. John, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, Mike. Thank you very much.
4: You, you and I, you and I agree about about this. Uh, it's time to uh, get the uh, country. Uh, back to normal, get the children back to school and get the economy back up and running.
3: Exactly right. And I'm happy to say that it's not just you and I now. Uh, There are certain people around the country, uh, and I count the uh, deputy mayor of Manchester as one of them, who's basically said that, you know, Sir Richard Lees is his name. uh, The chances of eradicating the virus are virtually nil. So it's time to now look at how to deal with the virus and how to get rid of some of these measures, which are now doing more damage than the virus itself.
4: Yes, absolutely. Uh, Couldn't agree more. Um, I mean, I don't I don't mind uh, wearing a mask on public transport or in shops, um, but that's that's pretty much uh, all that I think is required Mm. to uh, to allow people to get back to uh, pretty much normal. I mean, there's obviously one or two things you can't you can't do and you do have to protect uh, elderly and vulnerable people um, as much as possible. But I mean, given that the level of the virus is now so low that they can't even find enough cases to count to produce a, uh, a regional uh, rate mm. uh, for a, a, an estimate for parts of the country. Uh, I think uh, it's time to try and persuade people uh, to look at the risks uh, in, the, in the round and to um, get back to back to life as much as as
3: much as possible and you and i've been saying this for a while now but i guess the key now is to find a way of doing that because it obviously the government uh, is unsure of how far they can push it because they've always taken this kind of slightly laissez-faire attitude haven't they to try and kind of nudge people in one direction or another so they've tried nudging people back to work and it hasn't worked and it hasn't happened and too many people have decided to just not do that so how do you think they can do it
4: well, it needs political leadership, and that's something that I'm afraid Boris Johnson hasn't been very good at uh, showing mm. in this crisis. I think he's been pushed around by public opinion uh, rather too much. I think he started off by frightening people uh, unnecessarily. Although it was, you know, it was a very frightening situation at the, uh, you know, in the middle of March. Uh, no question about that. Yes, uh, I agree with that. Yeah. He, he managed to make things worse by. Um, by closing schools and by abolishing exams. I mean, I think uh, that was a terrible mistake and we're now seeing the consequences of yeah. that. Um, and, uh, you know, we shouldn't have postponed elections. We shouldn't have uh, cancelled the exams. Uh, he, the Prime Minister, overreacted uh, to, to the situation much as um, public opinion did, um, where we needed leadership and uh, and and balance. Yes. And we didn't get...
3: But of course, if he had done anything other than what he did at the beginning, no doubt people like you and I would have been all over like, over him like a rash, saying that he was not doing enough. So I mean, he couldn't really win, <laughs> could he?
4: No, I think that is a that is a problem. <laughs> yeah, uh, you're, absolutely, you're absolutely right. Uh, politics is very very difficult, uh, but that's why you need someone with uh, with with more ability to understand the problem, get to grips with the problem, and explain mm. the problem public i mean that's not what boris johnson is good at no um you know he is quite good at detail sometimes uh, but he's uh, he tends to have quite a narrow focus i think uh and he doesn't have the skills that say you know tony blair had mm. of able to explain what the government is doing and why it's doing it um and take people with him and, yeah. you know boris has appeared to be buffeted by uh, by events and by public opinion which is which has swung uh, quite wildly this way and that uh, whereas what you want from uh, from a prime minister is leadership. And yes. we haven't
3: had it. But I think when you when you, I mean, let's like ju- juxtapose the, the Brexit arguments and the Covid arguments. And with Brexit, it was very clear what it was that he wanted to do. And it was very easy to articulate why he wanted to do those things. But with Covid, it was more yep. difficult because nobody really knew what they were dealing with. So he couldn't be quite as demonstratively uh, sure about something because he wasn't sure.
4: Well, absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, and Brexit was a different sort of question. It was a big question of national uh, destiny and yeah. national identity. Right. And, you know, Boris Johnson is quite good on uh, questions of uh, questions of uh, national identity. He's, you know, he's steeped in history. Uh, he, he enjoys using uh, language colourfully to persuade people. Uh, but the coronavirus is something completely different yeah. because that's a sign problem that requires a un- deep understanding of probability and epidemiology and those are not Boris Johnson's uh, strengths at all
3: no and also he's very un I mean you, you say he's not he doesn't have the-, the skills of Tony Blair he doesn't have the skills of Margaret Thatcher either because I'm pretty sure that if Margaret Thatcher was currently in charge she would be ordering the civil servants back to their offices she would be making sure that that happened my feeling is, is that if he starts ordering them back to the offices they just won't come and then he kind of won't no. know what to do
4: abs- uh, abs- absolutely absolutely um, and, but Margaret Thatcher would have been different. When she, she, was a, she was a scientist. She would have actually got to grips with the scientific question. Yeah. She would have formed, uh, and then she would have been able to explain explain why she had reached that mm. view and why other people should uh, should go back to their offices.
3: Yeah.
4: Whereas I mean, Boris Johnson just sort of says, "Oh well, you know, it's, it's a good thing to go back to your office because then you can uh, you can you can." Well, I can imagine. Office. I
3: can tell you exactly now what he would do. He would go work, work, work. You know, you just say work three times as if it's some kind of magic uh, um, incantation to get people back to work, you know, because that's what he likes. He loves a slogan. I've been very disappointed. I have to say, you know, I've been a a supporter of his, John, uh, since he was elected prime minister. And and I've been really looking forward to what he was going to do. But I mean, me and, and, and also lots of other Boris Johnson supporters have become incredibly disillusioned in the past month or so
4: well it's the wrong the wrong kind of challenge for him i mean uh, you're absolutely right he was he, he was elected prime minister to to get brexit done and to cheer everybody up yeah. because i mean getting brexit done was going to be quite difficult uh, and would actually have resulted i mean it is going to result in uh, in all sorts of economic problems but they're going to be masked by the huge uh, economic crisis yeah. brought on by uh, by the coronavirus and the lockdown and uh, you know he he would have been the right prime minister to uh, to, to jolly people along in that rather difficult uh, process. But yeah. he's the absolute wrong prime minister to deal with a public health crisis. Mm.
3: But what can anybody do about that? Because I can't see any reason why he would be replaced within the party. I had this conversation with somebody yesterday that, you know, there would have to be a massive kind of revolt within the ranks of the Tory backbenches uh, to even consider such a thing, uh, to sort of talk about removing him because he has got them into the best place that they've been in a very long time. Um, So I just worry that that we're kind of stuck in this this dead-end cul-de-sac that we're in now without really any idea of how to get out of it.
4: Well... (laughs) you're stuck with the results of the last election yes mike that's how democracy well, no, works no i don't mean
3: no i don't mean that i mean we're stuck with this, the current situation i have this overwhelming feeling when i wake up every morning now that we're just treading water going nowhere not really finding solutions and just kind of sitting around waiting for something to happen
4: well i think that's a, that's a bit unfair i mean i think is it's it possible it's possibly because you haven't seen you haven't seen the prime minister for ooh, about four days now because he's on he's on holiday he's also gone um,
3: camping I, which is very disturbing to me
4: yeah, well, I suspect it's one of those. It's one of those yurts on a, yes. on a wooden. Oh
3: wooden yeah, central. it won't. Be, it won't be. It won't be one of those decathlon two-man tents, will it? That pops out I of the bag. I don't think it's one of those. <laughs>
4: not with, with Carrie and Wilfred uh, in the in the tent with it. Yeah, no, right. I don't. I do not think so. But no, I think that you know, I I think you're overreacting. I mean, you've got to remember that actually, Boris Johnson's still uh, remarkably popular. I mean, the oh, opinion yeah. polls, you know, have have been quite interesting. There were a couple yesterday. I mean, one. You know, people getting very excited about a uh, the Tory party only having a two point yeah. lead, um, but it's still it's it, it's still got a lead, uh, and there's some rather sharp differences between the opinion polls as to uh, as as to who people prefer out of. Uh, Keir Starmer and Yeah, yeah and Boris also
3: Trump also Trump. at a time when, when we are in the worst, uh, possibly the worst sort of uh, downturn recession that we can imagine having, certainly since about 2008, um, you know, a, a coronavirus crisis that's led many people to lose their jobs, uh, a, a, a prime minister uh, who doesn't seem to be able to get anything right at the moment. And yet Keir Starmer still trailing in the polls.
4: Yes, but I mean, he's doing a lot better than uh, Jeremy Corbyn was.
3: Well, uh, I, I so mean, he... my 15 year old son would be doing better than Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, that doesn't... the point is, is that Keir Starmer, I, I sent him a tweet the other day when he said this is no way to run a country. I said, you can't even run the Labour Party. You know, Labour Party is riven uh, by the left, uh, by the anti-Semites no. and no, by no. the people who who hate Keir Starmer. <laughs> who they're, tra- they're trying to, 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 to disassociate themselves from him. No, that's,
4: that, that is not the case, Mike. I mean, it is very much it's... the case. The so-called the, the, the Corbynites are scattered to the to the winds. Uh, they're finished. They're out. They're done. Uh, there's no, they, they have no uh, they have no influence on the Labour Party anymore. And so, uh, you know, you could criticise Keir Starmer for not doing enough with the, uh, the, the the absolute authority he has over his party, uh, but but having to deal with uh, with a divided party is uh, is not really is not really his problem. Um, I mean, his problem is that you know it's very difficult as a, as a leader of the opposition to uh, get enough to get yourself in front of the British people enough. And mm-hmm. it's particularly difficult when the parliament's not sitting uh, and all you've got is a, is, is a few sort of Zoom conferences and, and clips on the news. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Keir Starmer is doing uh, doing perfectly well. But what, what my point is that actually, uh, you know, you you may be a Boris Johnson supporter, but I mean, all the Remainers... Uh, hated Boris Johnson in the first place and cannot understand how he is still so popular. But that is because he, you know, he spoke for half the country who voted to leave. And uh, there are still an awful lot of people around who do not understand that.
3: Well, there's a lot of Remainers who don't understand very much, unfortunately, including the fact that they lost and they should move on and stop putting FBPE next to their Twitter accounts and, and stop, uh, you know, abusing everybody that they don't agree with. But that's Not the real story. world, mate. The rejoiners, as they now call themselves. I mean, really, for heaven's sake. I mean, the European Union now is something that we hardly ever mention because they're in a hell of a worse state than, than even we are.
5: Uh, are
3: they? Yeah. Well, they haven't got any money, right? They haven't managed to issue any support for any uh, individual country that needed support at the time they needed support because of COVID. You know, they managed to shut down the borders uh, of Italy uh, uh, when Italy was asking for help from the EU. Um, They've got countries to the far uh, east of Europe who are uh, not doing things that they want them to do and they're threatening to pull their funding on the grounds that they don't agree with them. You know, it's it's all over the place
4: well yeah but it's it'll it'll carry on and uh, we i mean we're the ones who are going to have the the, the real difficulty uh, after the end of this year
2: um, i don't think so.
3: i don't agree with that i think i think they will have far more difficulty than we will because we will then uh, be doing business with them they will not stop doing business with us um, but there's no need for us to rehearse all of the same arguments we've been having for the last three years. I mean, in fact is is that you know, COVID has changed the world. COVID has changed everything, and the EU yeah. and whether we're in it or not, is a minor kind of irritant.
4: Well, yes, but one of the things that the coronavirus has done, actually, is 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 cause countries to want to close themselves off from other countries. Yeah. So that you're right, that has that has caused all sorts of problems in the EU. But it's also caused you know immense problems in the in the UK because mm. I mean it's been one one of the great spurs behind uh, the surge of support for for Scottish. Uh, well, you know, it's funny
3: you say that because I was going to ask you about that before I let you go. Because um, you know, there are plenty of people in Scotland who believe um, that they will get uh, independence, that the that the game is done, and that there will be a second referendum, and that'll be all that'll be all over. I don't see it that way. No,
4: no. The the, the, the second referendum cannot happen unless the Westminster government uh, allows it, and there's absolutely no question of that happening. But right. that is only. To play into Nicola Sturgeon's hands, unfortunately, because she can instead of actually answering all the difficult questions about uh, how she's going to uh, find two thousand pounds per head for the uh, for the Scottish uh, population to to replace the, uh, the the share the revenue sharing that she gets from the UK, mm. uh, she can just rant on about how uh, how horrid old Westminster won't let her have another referendum. She had her referendum in 2014. That settled the question for a generation. Right. Uh, and and. It- Move on, but unfortunately, um, I do think Scottish nationalism is is, is on the rise, and it's just going to continue to exploit the grievance uh, of uh, of not being allowed to have. Uh, you know, a referendum every five minutes yeah. until they... But, but we
3: also one. get a very false picture down here in London of what people believe in Scotland because I know personally, having worked up there for a long time, there's loads of people I still talk to in Scotland who tell me that it's not true to say that there's a majority feeling for for independence. There simply isn't. There's loads of people who still would rather be part of the United Kingdom.
4: Well, 45% in the... Uh, in, in well, the, in, in the
3: latest poll, uh, which is always... You know, I can't remember the last poll that got anything right, to be honest. <laughs> you know? Yeah, well...
4: Yeah, but there's no other way of knowing what.
3: Uh, well, yeah, but what, that's a ridiculous uh, argument. Yeah. We might as well take a poll, which might be wrong, and believe it because there's no other way of measuring it. I mean, that's nonsense, isn't it?
4: There will be elections next year, and the SNP will sweep the board and possibly, possibly get more than fifty percent of the vote. I mean, that will be uh, that that will be a genuine test. I still don't think that the UK government should concede a referendum, even on, in, in that situation. Uh, but it's going to be very difficult because it will just hand a propaganda weapon. To, uh, to Nicola Sturgeon, and she will exploit it for all she's worth, yeah. because
3: she's very good at it. Yeah, she's very good at it, no question at all. But equally, um, the SNP have been the power in Scotland ever since Labour sort of self-destructed many, many years ago because they took it all for granted. But at the end of the day, more people voted for Brexit than ever vote for the SNP. So, you know, what does that tell you? Well,
4: <laughs> still... Well, it tells you that a lot of people voted in the. That's what I mean.
3: In local elections like the Scottish Parliament, you know, in which Europeans are allowed to vote, by the way, um, it means nothing.
4: Yeah, but it still means a majority in Scotland voted to uh, to remain. So uh, that is that is another uh, another grievance that the SNP can feed on. And they will continue to do that. And, um, you know, I mean, you and I can hope that at one point that the souffle will collapse. But at the moment, there's absolutely no sign of it. And, you know, the younger generation are absolutely mad for independence.
3: Yeah. Uh, I'd, give them, I'd uh, give them a referendum tomorrow, watch them lose it, and then say cheerio, bye-bye. <laughs> you know, that's the end of the SNP. <laughs> well, yeah. You- well, it would it would
4: be. You're right. Yeah, it I mean, would. Uh, That's
3: why they don't want the referendum because either way, it's the end of the SNP. Because if they win it and they get independence, the SNP is of no consequence to anybody. They'd have to form another party into something other than a one subject conversation.
4: No, I think I think the SNP would continue for some time in 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 an independent Scotland. But it would it would probably split at some at some point. But uh, let's hope we don't we don't get that because I don't I don't want to see my country uh, broken no, up. Do I a valuable part of it, and uh, I hope they. Uh, Listen,
3: I've got my I own tartan, John. You know, last thing I want to see uh, is Scotland annexing itself away from the rest of the United Kingdom.
4: Well, good. I thought I thought you were saying um, good riddance to them.
3: I, I, Not at I all. No, was... my, my, you've seen my name. I mean, my name is a Scottish name. My parents are both from Scotland. Like I say, I have my own tartan. You know, I had a kilt once. <laughs> you know. Well, my name, my name's a Scottish name too. By the way, um, I have I, to ask you this question. I was listening to John Nicholson the other day, and you were on his show. And he, after signing off and saying cheerio to you, he referred to you as John Rentoul. Is that uh, some yes. kind of Scottish thing?
4: Well, he, th- he, th- he thinks that's how you pronounce it in Scotland. There is a place <laughs> called Rentoul in uh, uh, in Perthshire. Yeah. Um, and uh, he pronounces it the, the Scottish way. But uh, uh, he, my father always insisted it was equal equal stress on both syllables, which is yes, uh, very are, sensible. I totally possible
3: but, but <laughs> yeah, yeah very sensible well listen John delightful to talk to you as ever John Renzel chief political correspondent commentator I should say at the independent uh with some very interesting and as ever very reasoned views the independent republic of Mike Graham on talk radio Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We have a great many things to talk about this morning, particularly uh, not just about uh, the uh, migrant crisis, not just about the NHS problem, but about how we get people back to work. I think I've come up with a brilliant solution and I'm going to suggest it to our next guest, Jerry Hayes. Here's what you do. You say to everybody who's currently not working in an office, who should be working in an office, and that includes the civil servants, you will basically get your first month's pay, pay to you tax free. But if you remain working from home, you will be taxed. Now, I think that would be a pretty good incentive to get most people uh, out off their backsides onto a train and back into an office. Don't you? Let's talk to Jerry Hayes and find out. Former uh, Tory MP, of course, Barrister, uh, who gave me good enough to give me a, a copy of his own book for my birthday, uh, which I found very interesting indeed. Jerry, a uh, very good morning to you. Good morning to you. Very nice to talk to you. Now, before we get into the business of trials and juries and crown courts and all of that, um, what do you make of my idea? I think giving people a tax-free month would be uh, uh, like sort of nectar of the gods to people, and uh, make them come back to work. It's all about money in the end.
2: Well, yeah, but it, it depends how good at working from home you are. If you're more productive working from home, and many banks, I think, uh, Schroders have said, we want more people to work at home because they're more productive, that's a good thing.
3: If they're lazing... Well, that's about typical of the banks who so, so fundamentally misunderstand <laughs> the economy.
2: Well, yeah, that's right. I mean, people do want to get back to work and I want to get back to work as a criminal barrister, but we just can't because the government is not putting money into the system.
3: No. Well, you've been warning about this for many months, haven't you? Because way before Covid, uh, you were telling us that there was a massive backlog of cases because there simply aren't enough courts. I think I can't remember what the percentage of courts was, but you told me a shocking figure of the number of courts that weren't actually even doing business. Oh, yeah, something
2: like two-thirds are not doing business yeah,
3: yeah. at all. Yeah. And, of course, from the Ministry of Justice at The Times today, they say now there's a backlog
2: of 30,000. Well, I'm afraid that's just a bare-faced lie, because on this programme to you, on a number of occasions, I said before the, the um, you, you weren't allowed back into to, to courts... Um, the backlog was 37,000. No. Now it's over 41,000. Mm. And then they are saying, well, because of Covid, and it's got precious little to do with Covid, really, the backlog, um, we're probably going to have to curtail
3: or abolish jury trials in some cases. Right. This is serious and sinister stuff. But, but why does that have to be the case? I mean, what what's the problem with having jury trials? Are they saying that they can't have jury trials because of Covid?
2: Well, actually, they, they can have jury trials, and there are jury trials, but there are not too many courts that can actually cope with them. The big problem is social difference of juries. You've got 12 jurors. Mm. In court, you can actually sort that out. Right. It's being done as a baby. You know, you, you have them dotted around the court. It's not, as, not, it's not as satisfactory or unsatisfactory, but it does actually work. So that, that's quite good. But the government are just not doing it. We've heard all about these Nightingale courts. Hardly any of them are being used. Mm. And now they're saying, well, Never mind jury trial. Let's 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 get a single judge to sort it all out. It'd be so much quicker, and it's only going to be temporary.
3: Yeah. Well, now, I mean, why least... not just flip a coin? I mean, it'd be quicker, it'd be even quicker. You Just go. All right. I tell you what. Guilty or not guilty. Heads or tails. There you go. There's ah, ten, you do ten yes. cases in ten minutes.
2: No, there's a better idea than that. Why didn't you have an algorithm to do it? <laughs> oh, good have idea. An
3: algorithm. Listen, to it's do all because... the rage. It's all the rage. Yeah, this it? is what we yes. need. Be guided of by course. the scientists, right? Yes. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. It really is mad, isn't it? It's it's really scary
3: stuff. And it's
2: going to undermine confidence in the the, the judicial system Mm. because a lot of people and some judges are saying this is, well, well, shoplifting, all sorts of things like that. What does it matter? Well, it does if you're a professional person. Or, or any person mm. of good character. Once you've got that against your name, you're in trouble. A well, minor exactly. assault. It's still an assault. Yeah. You won't be able to work as a teacher anymore. Right. But what about the black ethnic minority people who do not have, well, some of them don't, a lot of confidence in the in the system generally. Right. They elect for jury trial because it's random. They, it could be anybody yeah. on that jury trial. They still, not not just necessarily white, male and, and, and stale. Mm. You know, I think there's a plot here. I think the government, or the MOJ, really do want to get rid of the
3: system. Mm. But is there a reason why they want to get rid of the system, or is it just about trying to be more efficient? Uh, well, <laughs> you know, there's that. It, it's also an awful lot cheaper. It really,
2: really, really is. Yeah. Jury's, uh, you know, It's like having a hospital how much more
3: efficient would they be without patients? Yes. Or a stool? You know, it'd be fantastic. Well, this is the the trouble with running the government uh, as if you're a management consultant or as if you are you know, the people who advise people on what to do. You know, I famously, I think I've told you the story of where, when I worked at the Daily Express, famously these, uh, this, this bunch of, uh, of idiotic management consultants were called in to see if they could streamline the business. And after sitting there uh, being paid something like £25,000 a day for the best part of about six months, their recommendation uh, was that basically we shut the newspaper down and rent out the building. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, I was like, well, that's I mean, not really an option. Totally insane. Yeah. Totally insane. I've never understood
2: the way McKinsey's and people like that actually work, you know, the big management yes. consultancy. Because a lot of people have got very, very good degrees. They go in at the age of 22, mm. go on a, a year's course, and then go to places like the Express and tell them how to run their yeah. business. Well, I mean, I had, friend, I had a friend
3: i had a that I knew at university who did exactly that. He ended up becoming like a director of Hayes Consulting or something. I said, you don't know anything yeah. about anything. You know, what are you doing? Um, no, no. But the, the, the worrying thing about this whole jury system, the worrying
2: thing about the backlog, firstly, it's being put about, oh, yeah, it means the judge is going to have to let the most serious criminals free, the rapists the murderers.
3: Yeah. Absolute rubbish. Well, that's what it says in the Times. Are you saying the Times now, have got that wrong? Yes, I'm afraid they have. Mm-hmm. And whoever, whoever wrote that leader,
2: uh, who clearly knows nothing, I will find out who he is. I will sniff him and hunt him down. And you're surely not referring to, to the Times
3: legal correspondent. No, 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 no. That's not Jonathan.
2: That's not Jonathan. Jonathan's, Jonathan's name is a sensible person. Well, he
3: does. I was going to defend him, actually, because I think he is. He is a very good bloke. And he wouldn't have written that. If he has, good heavens, there will be trouble. Mm. Yeah. Trouble ahead. But so so anyway. So, are we? So should we not be frightened of all these criminals being let loose on the streets? Then They're not going to be let loose on the streets. But they'll be let loose on the streets anyway, because there's no room for them in the prisons. <laughs> well, they're, 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 that, that's the other problem. Yeah. That's the other problem with the prisons. We, we we
2: send more people to prison than, I think, the whole of, uh, uh, not the whole of Europe, but, yeah, but any other country within, within the EU. But there is a way around of all this. The way around of this is to have... Open spaces, public spaces, where you can have jury trials. We could solve all this in a few months, if not a year, mm. if there was a will and if the money was being put in. Yeah. The whole, the whole system. The Whole, and we've got a great, well, we used to have a great system of, of criminal justice is being undermined. Mm. And what worries me is Parliament will just sleepwalk into all of this because they'll be reading, oh, the dangerous criminals are being let loose,
3: the rapists, and it is just not but the trouble is, of course, Jerry, that this is just one single kind of um, small world, uh, which is, has been affected in the same way that many other small worlds have been affected. But yesterday, we had loads of call from people who have been trying to get various procedures done. In the NHS haven't happened uh, because of the COVID situation. Because nothing else is being done apart from anything related to COVID nineteen, and and I think I suspect this is this is a problem for the legal de- department as well.
2: Oh, yeah, I, I, absolutely right. But there is a way round of it. It is not all doom and gloom. Mm. I mean, yeah,
3: no one's going to cry
2: for, for for us barristers. But I tell you, Unlikely. I haven't been... Uh, I have not been in
3: court for a trial for
2: four or five months. Really? Just, and, yeah.
3: So, yeah, I mean, without being indelicate, from... how are you making any money? <laughs> I'm not. And after this show... Is this why you haven't I asked have... me out for lunch? <laughs> well, I will see. But But
2: one of the things is, after this show, I've got to ring up the tax people and ask if I can defer my VAT and defer my tax, because that's the only way someone's living. The yes. money we've saved for a tax and VAT, we're having to spend to live. Yeah. Now, I can just about cope, but the kids, they are going bankrupt. Yeah. Um, firms of solicitors are disappearing. Barristers' chambers are closing. Mm. Uh, it is a very, very worrying situation, but I suspect the majority of people just won't care until, their until son, something their happens to them. yeah. Exactly. And then the Daily Mail will go mad. Yes, again. And it be too late. Yes, yeah, there well, we
3: are. Well, listen, Jerry, Let's. we can only hope that somebody decides to fix it. Thank you very much indeed. Jerry Hayes, criminal barrister, former Conservative MP, hasn't done a case for five months. Well, that's ridiculous, isn't it? Why can we not have law as it is supposed to be carried out, carried out? We cannot go any longer like this. We cannot. I'm going to start losing the plot pretty soon if something doesn't happen to get fixing on our economy and on the businesses that we run and on the civil service that we run as well. Quite frankly, it is out of control. Somebody needs to get a grip of it. I've come up with a great idea. Give everybody uh, a tax-free month if they go back to work in an office. I think that would solve the problem overnight. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Let's get straight to it. Helen Dale has joined our panel of, uh, of what I call the intelligentsia uh, right here on the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Neil Oliver uh, is one. Peter Hitchens is another. Helen's joined the, uh, the team because, uh, quite frankly, she has a lot to say. Uh, and I've got a lot of time for listening to it. Helen, a very good morning to you.
1: Morning, Mark. How are you? Yeah, very
3: well indeed. Now, we were halfway through, it seemed, uh, towards the end of our last chat of you telling us how Australia managed to stop the migrant uh, boats from coming. One of the things that I was struck by was your explanation of how in Australia the trade unions were much better at protecting, you know, the sort of the uh, the, the lower end uh, jobs and in the sense of not being al- allowing them to be undercut by immigrant workers coming in. So So let's kind of take it from there.
1: All right, well, I started with 1992, Paul Keating, Labor Prime Minister, mandatory detention. Yeah. That's always been part of the Aussie system. Now, and I explained a bit about the background, which involved things like a, t- a focus on market-dominant minorities or model minorities, people like Jews, Malaysian Chinese, Kurds, Cops, um, Maronite, Lebanese Maronites, that, those kind of people, model minorities. So fast forward now to 2001 and what became known as the Tampa affair and the Tampa election, there was a, a an Australian general election, which is referred to as a federal election in Australia because it's a um, it's a fe- it's a fed- federation like right. Germany. Right. Um, now, what happened is a boatload of asylum seekers on a Norwegian-flagged vessel called the Tampa attempted to land in Australia, and they were overwhelmingly from. Afghanistan and Pakistan.
3: Yeah.
1: And what happened is that there was a, an extraordinary naval Mexican standoff, basically, where the MV Tampa was in Australian waters yeah. and the Howard government, John Howard, who was coalition or liberal prime minister, but liberal in Australia doesn't mean American liberal. It no. means more classical liberal. Right. Okay, so kind of like kind of like the liberal democrats here but before they went weird
3: yes well that's kind of what it should still and that's kind of what it should still mean here i was having a conversation enough, just the other day uh with a young woman who was saying that it's very difficult now on dating apps she put on a dating app that she was a liberal um and people assumed that she was a lefty as opposed to an actual liberal because that's now been the word has now been kind of hijacked isn't it
1: Hijacked, yeah. And, and I mean, seriously, Gladstone would, would power London with the speed that he's spinning in his grave at the moment, <laughs> I'm sure. Absolutely. It's just so, anyway, so John Howard framed this boatload of asylum over 400 of asylum seekers, with a phrase that became an election tagline, which is we will decide who comes here and the circumstances in which they come. Hmm. Now, he based his argument or that that election slogan um, on the arguments made by a woman who is now dead, an economist, called Helen Hughes. Now, Helen Hughes just sounds like a Welsh name, obviously, Mm. but Helen Hughes wasn't Welsh. She was actually a refugee, a Jewish refugee from what is now the Czech Republic, um, taken into Australia after the Second World War. So she spoke with enormous authority on refugees and immigration and who should and shouldn't come to the country. Now, anyway, what Helen Hughes pointed out was that the 1951 Refugee Convention was framed with market dominant minorities in mind. Mm. People like Jews or Malaysian Chinese or Kurds, people who were being picked on because they were winners not because they were losers or because they were very, very conservative religious people. One of the points she made at the time, she said, who would you want, a Malaysian Chinese refugee fleeing from being uh, persecuted by the Muslim majority or the Ayatollah Khomeini? And she pointed out that the Ayatollah Khomeini had been given sanctuary in France. Mm. You know, she said there are some people who are being persecuted that you don't want to help. Right. And she was the first one to point out, and she used the tamper at the moment. Still, imagine a great big merchant vessel sitting in the Timor Sea with four hundred people on the deck, and there were aerial photographs. I remember the I remember the, the story
3: at the time. Yeah, it was horrendous, wasn't it?
1: It was huge. It was huge. And she was the one who pointed out, and she drew a distinct, a very clear distinction between the people on this vessel and people like herself, who who were Jewish refugees um, from Nazi Germany. Uh, who they were all male. They lied about their ages, and because Australia has always had a s- system of mandatory detention with immigrants, they knew they'd lied about their ages because Department of Immigration and Ethnic Affairs check their teeth.
3: Yes. Well, do you know what People I found very out the other reliably
1: tell someone's age from right. their
3: teeth. Well, what I found out uh, just the other day for me and Collins, uh, who follows me on this uh, on this very show, uh, was that in this country we apparently regard illegal migrant children as children up to the age of twenty-five, which is yes, extraordinary. Uh, it's just-
1: yeah yes it's just completely mad and anyway so a couple of things happened Howard took on board Helen Hughes's arguments and she was absolutely horrifyingly traduced by the left-leaning media but it was very difficult for them to sort of pe- to pick apart her claims about refugees because of her status as a Jewish refugee. And I mean, the worst one I heard, and this was quite new then, you hear it quite a lot now, but it was very, very difficult in 2001 to accuse a Jewish person of being a racist. Yeah. So what she was accused of was of being a self-hating Jew, mm. which is pretty unpleasant. Yes, you know, it is. If you, if you, if you talk to a Jewish friend and if they've ever been called a self-hating Jew, there's not all of them, but some have, it, yeah. it's a very unpleasant experience for a it Jewish is. person. Absolutely. And anyway, There was a three pronged program uh, developed by the Howard government, which won the election based on this, obviously, Mm. uh, called the Pacific Solution. And the Pacific Solution had three elements. Legislation was passed excluding the islands that various of the boats with refugees on them Mm. were coming to from what was called Australia's migration zone. Now, this was obviously challenged in the country's constitutional court, the High Court, but the government won because Australia's international regime of accepting international law into Australian law is known as a dualist system, mm. which means just executing an international treaty doesn't make that treaty part of Australian law. Right. It has to be moderated and enacted in the form of legislation passed by the Parliament commonwealth parliament so that meant that modifications could be made to a treaty that australia had signed in the context of local immigration yes. policies and, and would you say that
3: would you say helen that that is, is kind of the equivalent of what this country has signed by way of the sort of the un uh, uh, agreement and also the agreement that we have with the eu which basically says that we must show um comfort and succour to anybody who wants to come to this country um, well, because if they were going to be destitute, we have to look after them, in other words.
1: Well, part of the problem you've got here is you've created a rod for your own back by entrenching human rights law yeah. in domestic legislation. Right. The Human Rights Act should be repealed. It is very, very dangerous to have human rights legislation enacted in a country that then takes away and remember i was talking about paul keating's arguments about democratic legitimacy and electoral support needs to exist for immigration or otherwise uh you finish up with all immigrants being rejected you get you actually get the election of figures like Donald Trump, you actually get this huge groundswell of anger that happened before the 2016 referendum. Now, Australia's never had that, Mm. but the reason it's never had that is for the argument that Paul Keating made originally back in 1992, is that if immigration because Keating believed in a big Australia, populate or perish, get a bigger population because of, we very nearly got invaded in the second world war. The battle of the Coral Sea was the repulsion of an invasion fleet from Japan steaming its way towards Australia. So. People wanted to increase the population, but in order to do that, you need democratic legitimacy and electoral legitimacy for immigration. Yes. Well, what we've been told,
3: um, as you probably know uh, from successive governments, is that we've needed immigration, one, uh, to bolster uh, a failing and a falling birth rate in this country, and also, secondly, uh, to bolster uh, parts of the economy which British people refuse to work in.
1: Well, the first part is actually true it was one of the arguments that Paul Keating made and not just Paul Keating it goes back to 1945 in Australia when we first did the the slogan populate or perish Mm. was used by Arthur Caldwell who was the Labour immigration minister at the time now Arthur Caldwell was also quite racist I mean he was the one that introduced the white, didn't introduce but made a big deal of the white Australia policy which wasn't gotten rid of until 1966 Uh I mean I, I hope you don't get in trouble from Ofcom for this but one of his slogans although he was very pro-immigration he actually got up and gave a stump speech to a trade union meeting um i think somewhere in victoria and he used the phrase two wongs don't make a white right
3: extraordinary what year was that what year was that
1: that uh, that was in i think 1950
3: okay well that explains
1: a lot yes it does explain explain a lot so okay so that was the first part was the exclusion of islands from the migration zone the next one was coupled with Keating's already existing mandatory detention policy was the removal of asylum seekers to bits of the Pacific that used to be Australian colonies. A lot of people, most notoriously Nauru, which is an island, it's the one with all the bird poop. That's how Nauru made its money historically, guano, bird poop. And the other one is Papua New Guinea, which also used to be an Australian colony. It was awarded to Australia at the end of the Second World War Because before the Second, uh, sorry, First World War, because before the First World War, it was German New Guinea. Right. Okay. so Australia has actually abused the fact that it was, whilst it was a British colony, it was also a colonial power in its own right Mm. to do that with places that it effectively used to own. And then the third prong of the Pacific solution was boat turnbacks. Yes. And this was very, very deliberately done. And some people may reject the Australian policy based on what I'm going to tell you. And it's legitimate to do that. But it's always, always with these things, there are trade-offs. Now, the turnbacks meant that you would have boatloads of asylum seekers and we're talking very large numbers we're not talking one sudanese boy here um, and and also they were
3: coming from much further away so they were much bigger boats. yes they were yeah
1: yeah much bigger boats um and you would have boatloads of asylum seekers going down with all hands Mm. and there was one incident i mean and there is still a lot of argument about over the the numbers involved a boat called sieve 10 and sieve s-i-e-v stands for suspected illegal entry vessel right and it had 400 asylum seekers on it and it is believed that it went down with all hands mm. but I, it, people can't prove that and if you read arguments from both sides you said it might have been 200 might have been 400 we don't know where they finished up yeah you know, all of this kind of thing right um, So this is really quite terrifying. But the effect of the Pacific solution, once a couple of boats had sunk and they'd all died, was that they stopped. Right. Because people so, realised so that and, they and weren't going to get to and, the country, and, and were the
3: boats like just not fit for purpose? Was that the reason they were Oh going yes, there? that
1: was the that was the absolute standard thing. In many cases, I mean, the MV Tampa was unusual mm. because it was a proper merchant vessel. They'd actually rescued all these people, and it was a proper Norwegian flagship. It was properly crewed, and although the the Norwegian sailors had nowhere to keep. the the asylum seekers that they were quite safe. They weren't going to be drowned or anything like that because it was a proper ship. Um, But often you just got boatloads of people in unseaworthy vessels. And we started to appreciate for the first time how horrifying the people smugglers are. And you have, people need to understand and this is something where a a lot of, and they learned in Australia uh, how horrifying people smuggling is. And it is exactly the same people who bring young women into the country for the sex trade it is exactly the same people who bring um immigrant labor in into the country sneak it into the yeah. country and have them doing jobs at, at well if it whites white forms of
3: slavery sure modern well slavery. this is it they i mean it's, 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 a, it's a criminal there's no question it's a criminal enterprise uh, at best at worst it could be even worse than that it could be funding terrorism as well is what we've been oh, hearing gosh, you, but well, we well, but, there's
1: all sorts of things yeah yes.
3: but we had an amazing uh, telephone call the other day from a guy in the isle of man whose daughter works in sudan uh, in one of the christian um sort of missions basically out there and she works it for a charity christian aid or something yeah yeah. something like it's a smaller one but she was basically Mm -hmm. saying to him that what she's now seeing more than anything uh in the camps that they're running and in in the various places that they do their work is human traffickers turning up and basically selling the idea to young sudanese men that you should come and live in and work in Britain. And this is how we're going to make you get there. And this is how you're going to get there. And this is what you're going to see when you get there. And they're showing them videos. They're showing them videos of people being put up in hotels. They're showing them a a lifestyle that they could have. I mean, it's quite flagrant now.
1: Well, this is... Part of the point that Helen Hughes made originally, when she her ideas fed into John Howard's policy development, which is you know they're all male, they lie about their ages, yeah, um, and they come from countries where women can't travel and often can't leave the house. Mm. And, and I remember Helen Hughes on a panel show saying what she says, and that means the women will die. Yes. So you're dealing with people who you probably it's the the Ayatollah Khomeini argument. What do you want, the Jewish person or the Malaysian Chinese person? From a market dominant minority who will contribute to your country or some form of religious nutter or someone who is so self-interested that it's entirely legitimate in his mind to leave all his female relatives behind at the time in afghanistan which was run by the taliban where women couldn't leave the house without a male relative which meant they starved
3: yes but this is the problem is it not with human rights laws and human rights acts because the human rights acts don't delineate between different individual people because they can't. Well, By their very all, nature, you cannot say we're only, we're only going to invite you to come to our country. You have to be able to invite everyone, surely.
1: Well, the, this is the, the problem with the debate about refugees. And as to paraphrase Helen Hughes again, the problem with the debate about refugees is that it assumes that all of them are like the Jews before the Second World War. And it is wise to know the terrible history. There were boatloads of Jews going around various countries trying to flee Mm. before the war from Hitler. And in one notorious case, a boatload of Jews was actually sent back to Germany and most of those Jews finished up being shot or gassed. So people were horrified at what had happened with the Jews and it was very much never again.
3: And people now do still make those comparisons, don't they?
1: Well, they do. And this is where Helen Hughes's point about people are not widgets. Refugees are not widgets. Do not assume that because... What you did with the Jews was in the in the 30s was wrong. That it would be wrong to do the same thing with another different right. bunch of people well,
3: who one are of the, things, the Jews, because and,
1: not if people aren't the same.
3: No, right. And also, one of the things that we learn and we have seen from people who work with a lot of refugees, um, even those who would encourage uh, refugees to come to this country, is that many of them would not in any way qualify uh, as refugees anyway, because many of them well, this are, came up as well. They economic, were economic migrants, economic migrants, and while it might be. Uh, nice to be able to allow people to come and live somewhere else um just like ben and jerry's wants you to uh, there shouldn't be any borders there shouldn't be any countries there shouldn't be any necessity uh, to live where you were born um basically you can't just let anybody come and live in your country just because they want to
1: well it, what you finish up with is people who make open borders arguments they make an economic argument and the economic argument it was actually originally and best made it, to the highest standard by a chap called brian Kaplan, the problem is and it's the same problem as project fear before 2016 is it's based on the idea that the only thing that matters to people is economics Mm. not things like for example culture community and crime rates and the thing is that when you get because people aren't widgets when you get people from minorities where they do bring very very high rates of crime and also sort of sets of values that then feed into crime it's very very clear in the situation in, in northern and midland cities with the grooming gangs that a lot of what has fed that and if you look at ella hill's interview dr ella hill from the from the nhs register um on trigonometry she talks about the the religious values that people brought with them that unaccompanied girls and in the north and the midlands they're mainly white and in other parts of the country they're white and Sikh and african caribbean as well but this whole idea that unaccompanied girls are kind of easy meat Mm. you know that there's something wrong with them so that means you could treat them in this way now those have religious roots and it's entirely legitimate for the people and, and for the people already in the country to say okay there might be some economic advantage accruing to open borders, but we don't want the crime. And it's all right to say you don't want the crime. Yeah. Well, this the is the trouble, is... though. It's
3: not It's not all right to say many of the things that you've just said because people will pick you up on that and say, that's a racist statement. You shouldn't be saying that. You know, you, we can say it here because we are having a conversation about what uh, the op- the, op- the opposite kind of view is. And the opposite view is that, well, we mustn't question any of this. We mustn't allow anybody to be critical. Um, and now look where we are. We're in a situation well, now the where, that, where, where there are boat, adult... boatloads of people arriving uh, on a daily basis, on an hourly basis as it would seem, uh, into Dover, uh, into parts of southern uh, England. And it doesn't seem to be any way of stopping it. And just because we're almost out of time again, the, it seems to me what you're saying is that the only thing really that stopped the immigration, the illegal immigration into Australia was a series of very unfortunate accidents that resulted in the deaths of the people of trying to get there. And
1: also, but also it did help Australia in that legislation could be passed and Australia has no constitutional or entrenched human rights protections right if you have human rights in australia you have them as a result as of an act of parliament and they are not considered to be universal they are not to be considered to, to be something that everyone has just given willy-nilly mm. it is very much a full basket of rights in australia is only conferred upon you once you obtain citizenship right and One of the reasons, and I'll finish with this, one of the reasons why the minority in Australia who are very, very pro-immigration and they tend to be the Greens party, they can never break 10% of the vote, which is why they don't have any influence on either the Labour Party or the coalition, which have had a version of the Pacific solution as bipartisan policy since 1992 with variations in it. But the reason the Greens cannot break 10% of the vote is because Australia has compulsory voting. So there is absolutely no way that small groups of dedicated lobbyists, charities, and NGOs are able to push the government into a position where it has to change the law because otherwise it's going to be Mm. made to look awful because they constantly have over their shoulder the awareness that every single Australian over the age of 18, even people in tiny remote Aboriginal communities, that the lengths to which the Australian government will go to make sure everybody gets to cast their ballot, um, they will all go to the polls, and that means every single policy in Australia is captive to the median voter.
3: Right. You,
1: it's much, much harder to to manipulate the electoral yes. process in such a way to make people who are very who are in favor of open borders yeah, say look more popular than yeah. they actually are then these ideas are not popular
3: right that's interesting and that maybe will be something that we should discuss again as well because the idea of universal voting has never been the case in this country but maybe uh, that would be one way of rooting out All of these kind of slightly mad, slightly um, extremist kind of um, voting patterns that people can try and encourage. uh, Because, as uh, Helen says, you can encourage smaller groups of people to have a far bigger influence than they really should. Helen Dale, thank you very much indeed. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Right now, though, uh, it is that time, uh, just after the 12.30 news, when we get stuck into a little bit of homeschooling. Uh, You might be celebrating getting your GCSE results today, uh, in which case you might be forgiven uh, for not listening to the homeschooling section today, but you might have to listen to it later on. But today, it's going to be one of the things that's always fascinated me um, about uh, the Earth and the planet on which we live, because, of course, lots of people talk about exploring uh, into outer space and exploring the universe and exploring uh, Mars and looking at Jupiter and all of that, going to the moon. But as part parts of this planet that we don't know terribly well. And one part of that uh, is called the Mariana Trench. Now, it is an amazing uh, and huge um, sort of furrow, if you like, in the middle of the uh, Pacific Ocean. And it's so deep that you could stick Mount Everest into it uh, and it would be completely submerged. Let's talk now uh, to Caitlin Richards, marine conservation biologist, uh, writer and public speaker. Caitlin, a very good afternoon to you
5: you Mike.
3: Thanks very much indeed for joining us. I've always been fascinated by the Mariana Trench. I don't know quite why, but it's partly, I think, because it's so vast and so little is really known about what goes on down there, particularly at the bottom of it. We've had a couple of submersible projects, I think, that have gone down to check it out. But tell us, first of all, where it is, how it was formed, um, and anything else we might need to know. Yeah, so
5: the Mariana Trench uh, is in the West Pacific, near the Mariana Islands and the island of Guam. And it was formed by a tectonic plates. So when plates kind of smashed together, they pushed down, made this big burrow, Yeah. And it, uh, it's a big crescent shape. And it was discovered in uh, 1875 by the Challenger expedition, which is why they've named the very deepest part of the trench uh, Challenger Deep. Okay.
3: Um, it says it stretches for more than 1,580 miles uh, with a mean width of 43 miles. Um, and as you say, Challenger Deep is where the steepest, the greatest depths are found. And I mean, so little is known about what's what's sort of down there, really. That that we're not even sure there might not be, you know, creatures which we we've never seen before.
5: Yeah. Every time someone sends a, a manned or unmanned expedition down there, they always discovering new species, new creatures. It's it's actually really incredible that things live at that deep you know the the water pressure is about a thousand times more than it would be on the
3: surface well this is one of the things Um, that that i've spoken about in the past that because of the size of the water pressure and the scale of that water pressure that that the things that are down there are quite big and they have to be bigger than they would otherwise be because of the because of the pressure
5: yeah that's and and like there's some really incredible things like um amoebas are a single-celled organism that's usually microscopic but there is a version of it that lives down deep in the trench, which is measured in centimeters. Right. It's a single cell that's centimeters long. That's really incredible. That's humongous.
3: Right. Yeah. I mean, I used to joke that there would be, you know, sort of, uh, you know, crabs down there the size of a Cadillac, you know, but there might well
5: be. Now, there are some giant crabs and some giant isopods, which is basically like a little pill bug, which is three feet long. Right. Like everything that is down there just kind of gets super big.
3: Right. Yeah, so you know, again you can have a lobster that was like the size of this studio or something.
5: Yeah, there's there's prawns the size of cats. Wow. That's yeah. amazing. That really is. i yeah. I
3: find that fascinating. And and when was the first kind of discovery made of this particular part of the planet?
5: Yeah, so it was in eighteen seventy five. The the Challenger expedition was a really big and important oceanographic expedition. So they went all around the globe for a few years just measuring the ocean bottom and discovering species and that's when it was first discovered and sounded at being incredibly deep. Yeah. And since then, there's been you know, several expeditions. Only four people have actually physically been to the very bottom of the trench. But there's been some unmanned ones with a uh, remote-controlled right. device. well. Didn't,
3: didn't James Cameron organize one? The yeah, guy who yeah, made yeah, the he's director, of, yeah. <laughs> director of Titanic, which I found quite weird. I mean, I don't know if he's going to make a movie out of it.
5: You know, he did. He did make a did make a little documentary that was on National Geographic about it. Yeah, he went in 2012, right. and there was a, a wealthy businessman who went last year. I guess just because he had the money and thought it'd be a good holiday spot. So right. he's actually the only person who's ever been twice.
3: Yes, and I mean, um, as a, as a sort of um, uh, somebody who knows about marine conservation, is it in any danger of changing over the years, or is it so far down that basically it's it's kind of um, protected, if you, if you like, from from the ravages of of whatever's happening above the surface.
5: I mean, in general, it is a really sheltered place. It is where things are, you know, species are basically the same as they were millions of years ago when they evolved. That doesn't mean it's completely untouchable, though. I mean, there, ha- there has been plastic found at the bottom. and And really? like those, those ponds have been found with plastic in their in their guts. So right. that's kind of evidence that, you know, human, human uh, influence has reached even to the very deepest part of the ocean. Yes,
3: absolutely right. And as far as the um, exploration of it is concerned, are there still parts of it that have not really been explored?
5: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's there's parts that we're not quite sure on that need to be explored more. There's species that we've discovered. And we know they exist. We might have a couple pictures of them, but we don't really know about their life cycles or the biology very much. So There's definitely a lot more to learn down right.
3: there. And and as far as the, the the sea kind of around it, if you like, does that is that different as well? Because when you've got that body of water and it's in such a deep place, I mean, does the rest of the kind of I don't know. I guess I'm I guess what I'm asking is, does the does the first kind of um, uh, I don't know, half a mile of sea above it actually operate differently from any other sea.
5: I mean, not particularly. the, the sea above it is is still extremely deep, so there would it would still be the same kind of deep uh, ecosystem there, the, and yeah. the deep species like goblin sharks and frill sharks and all kinds of crazy things that will live there. Right, you have to go pretty deep just even so get to the trench in the first place.
3: Yeah, of course. And I mean, as far as um, uh, is, is there a sort of ongoing? Um, submersible situation are there people constantly going down there to check things out
5: i mean like not constantly there was that that businessman who went last year did discover a few new species and made some discoveries um most most expeditions are going to be unmanned though just because of the, the expense of sending a person down there and not having them get crushed by the pressure yes um yeah there, but there are ongoing studies absolutely on what is happening down there in the right. species.
3: And because it's so deep, I mean, is it, um, is it any more difficult to illuminate? Because, I mean, I know I've seen some of the uh, the submersibles that have gone down before with lights on them. Is it darker, I guess, is, is the question I'm asking.
5: Yeah, it is quite dark, but there's actually surprisingly a lot of bioluminescence. A lot of animals that live there will emit their own light. you can imagine if you live in a really dark environment like that, the light's pretty much at a premium? Right. Um, and a lot of it will be a red light as well, because red is one of the first colors that kind of disappears underwater. So right. creatures can kind of illuminate so they can see while still keeping themselves pretty hidden.
3: I was going to say, so a lot of the creatures that would be down there probably wouldn't be necessarily very good at uh, their sight wouldn't wouldn't be terribly good.
5: Yeah, kind of, they would rely on their own light a lot to either attract things in or see where they're going.
3: Right fascinating stuff um is there is there anything that you can recommend people look at i mean i'm sure there's lots of information on uh, on uh, google about the mariana trench but is there is there a specific book people could look at or anything
5: well the uh the um documentary that james Cameron made is actually pretty good as far as showing the different species right And, you know, I know that the Mariana Trance has been getting some attention lately because it's been it's been shown in things like the Meg, where there's the speculation that Megalodons and other giant creatures are still living down there. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah, There's just been kind of fictional books kind of thinking about, oh, what if there's things down there that maybe thought were extinct but aren't. But I would just say that we don't need to think of extinct things or kind of mythical things living down there because there's already some pretty incredible things that we do know about.
3: Absolutely.
5: There's a right. goblin shark, which is pretty, as the name implies, pretty nasty looking because these big protruding teeth, big protruding head. Um, there's a fish that has a translucent skull, so you can actually see its brain oh, see its eyes, wow. Eye, which is pretty crazy. There's an a octopus called the telescope octopus that has eyes that actually protrude and can turn like a camera lens.
3: Like a so cartoon, all- like literally like yeah. a cartoon octopus.
5: Yeah, there's all kinds of crazy things that already wow. you know, live and exist and are down there without having to make anything up. So I would just encourage people to go check out the <laughs> species that live down there and how cool that is. Well, that's
3: fantastic. Well, brilliant. Thank you, Caitlin, very much indeed. Caitlin Richards, marine conservation biologist, writer uh, as well. It does. It sounds like something like SpongeBob, doesn't it, where you've got all these weird creatures. I mean, imagine having an eye that comes out and rotates around. You know, that's what they do in the cartoons, but that's what they do in real life. See, I've been going on about this. People have disbelieved me for years about the Mariana Trench and the creatures that live down there, because it is such a weird and unusual environment, unlike any other part of the Earth. And so I find it fascinating. I hope you do as well. Uh, And so go check it out. The Mariana Trench. Remember, uh, the deepest part of any ocean in the entire planet. Right here on planet Earth. Talk radio
2: across the UK,
3: online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The independent
2: republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio.